Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Frank Brosians, a co-founder of Taconic Capital, an $8 billion event-driven multi-strategy hedge fund founded in 1999. Frank started his career at Goldman Sachs, where he joined and later ran Bob Rubin's legendary risk arbitrage desk. That group became one of the top breeding grounds for hedge fund founders, including among its ranks, Tom Steyer at Farallon, Richard Perry at Perry Partners, Danny Ock at Oxif Capital Management, Eddie Lampert at ESL, Eric Mindich at Eaton Park, and Dinegar Singh at TPG Axon. Our conversation covers Frank's path to Goldman's Risk Arb Desk, 
the culture that made it a success, and his eventual decision to leave the firm. We then discussed the founding of Taconic, its partnership and investment philosophy, and its approach to risk management, capital allocation, and the pursuit of opportunities. Along the way, Frank highlights examples that demonstrate the benefits of a carefully aligned culture for teammates and clients across organizational structure, portfolio management, and compensation. Before we get going, the holidays are fast approaching, and just like learning from investment greats, we've got you covered. It just so happens that my wife works with one of the best custom jewelers in the country. They've sold jewelry to kings, queens, presidents, first ladies, and lots of regular folks like us too. For the ESG conscious, they only sell lab diamonds alongside a line of incredible looking travel jewelry. You can get a great gift for your loved ones knowing all along that you'll help me get serious brownie points for mentioning your business on the show. Hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge to check it out. Now, if you value experiences more than baubles, or if you're a single male, in part because you missed my spread the word advice on the Friends reunion show in September, we've got an experience for you too. Hop on our website, capitalallocators.com, click the premium tab, and buy premium memberships for your colleagues and friends for less than the price of a cup of coffee each week. Probably a lot less after inflation. Your friends will love you for getting them the weekly experience of receiving an email from us each Saturday morning with announcements, my favorite reading of the week, and updates on our guests. They can also access our library of transcripts that's so large at this point, it takes more than a year to get through reading just one a day. And if that's not enough to warm your heart to spread holiday cheer, between now and the end of the year, we're offering a holiday discount of 20% off the first year of membership. I'm afraid I can't make the same offer for the sparkling jewelry my wife sells that will brighten up your holidays, but their prices are already so low, you won't believe it. Hop on our website and the coupon code will be waiting for you, or hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Frank Brosians. Frank, thanks so much for doing this. I'm delighted to be here. I'm trying to think about where we should start, but maybe we should go all the way back to how you ever found your way to Goldman Sachs. So I was a mechanical and aerospace engineer at Princeton and was looking to get into business in some fashion. And I applied to business school, Harvard Business School. They accepted me, which was unusual coming out of college at the time, but they accepted me with a two-year deferred admit. So I was trying to figure out what to do for two years. Applied to a few places, got accepted to a number of engineering. One was Hewlett-Packard, et cetera. But I heard about these two-year investment programs that were starting in New York and decided to apply for them because the one thing I knew for sure coming out of Princeton was I wasn't going to be in finance and I definitely wasn't going to live in New York. (laughs) I think I got turned down by 14 or 15 places before Goldman Sachs hired me. They happened to have somebody looking that was an engineer himself, so took a chance. Was the reputation of Goldman when you started the premier partnership that it became? Not at all. It was viewed as kind of a middling firm at the time. The big firms at the time were First Boston, Morgan Stanley. The banks really weren't players in the space. So JP Morgan wasn't really considered a competitor. There were other smaller firms, Bear Stearns, et cetera. But Goldman Sachs was viewed as just another firm, really. 
What happened when you got there? I went into the merger and acquisition area. That's where I started. I spent about a year and a half there. It was phenomenal training because I knew virtually nothing about business at the time. I think it was at the time nine or 10 people, the whole group. And as analysts, you would come into a meeting of the group and have to come up with a buyer list and valuation metrics for some entity that they'd just been hired to sell. They always picked on the analysts first, then went up the curve. And the person that did the questioning was Peter Sachs, who at the time was just a vice president, but he terrorized the analysts. <laughs> he would make sport of embarrassing them in front of everybody. Chris Flowers was there with me. The first meeting I went to, I spent a lot of time with Chris going through who would potentially buy this unit that they were discussing at the time, what the valuations were, and went through the whole thing with him. He'd been there about four months, had had the experience and knew how to deal with it. And I came up with half a dozen buyers that I thought were reasonable based on my conversations with Chris. Of course, being the youngest guy there, Peter Sachs picks on me first and says, who do you think would be a buyer for this? I very tentatively threw out the first name and he said, that's actually a pretty good idea. I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is going to be a lot easier than I thought. He said, who else do you think might be a buyer? And I went right with my second name with a little more confidence. And he said, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Why would you think that? And of course, I didn't know why I thought it. It was just because I'd had the conversation with Chris and he told me it was a reasonable idea. And I didn't think that throwing him under the bus was the appropriate thing at the time. And so I just turned red-faced and said nothing. <laughs> so after a year and a half, this was now your time to go to business school. Actually, it was six months before. It was a two-year program. I'd spent a little bit of time in the merger arb area because what we would typically do on the banking side is we'd go down and talk to them about how to value different securities. And of all the areas at Goldman that I was exposed to, I found that area to be incredibly interesting. So I asked Jeff Boisey at the time whether it was even a possibility to spend the last six months of my two-year analyst program in another area. And he said, I think I know you well enough to know that you've got an area in mind. And I said, yeah, I do. It's the Riscarb area. And he said, well, let me call Bob Rubin. I think they coincidentally happened to be looking for someone. So I went down there and spoke to Bob. He asked me at the time if we like you and you like it here. Do you think there's any chance that you would not go back to business school and just stay? And being the mature, thoughtful person that I was, I said, well, actually, I have to tell you 99% <laughs> chance I'm going back to business school. And he looked at me like I had two heads and just nodded and said, okay, not the smartest answer in the world. He's frequently reminded me of that answer whenever he thinks I'm being slightly overconfident in my assessment of probabilities. He reminds me of that 99% odds because <laughs> I think it took me about three months before they asked me if I did want to stay and I immediately said yes and put business school off. So that Bob Rubin risk arb desk became one of the first great training grounds for what formed the hedge fund industry over time. What was it like being there? It was small at the time. We had Bob Rubin, another partner there, Bob Freeman, Amy Stevens, and I on the research side. On the trading side, David Silfen, who over time became the head of the trading desk there, an older trader by the name of Bruce Mayers, who's since passed away, and then a junior trader by the name of Richard Perry. 
all the decisions got made on the research side, it was pretty intense in that most of the risk at the time at Goldman Sachs was taken in the arbitrage area. There was very little risk being taken elsewhere in the firm. Jairn had not yet been bought. They really didn't take an awful lot of risk in the fixed income side. The lion's share of the risk actually was in risk arb. It was viewed as the single area where they took risk with partner capital. What did that mean in terms of order of magnitude of risk compared to how you'd think about the balance sheet or the business as a whole back then? That's a good question. There were at the time, I think less than 50 partners, not an enormous amount of capital. I think we had a couple hundred million dollars worth of risk at the time when we started. It grew so that by the time I started running the area in early 87, we were running close to a billion dollars worth of capital. It was still a significant portion of the risk-taking that we did at the firm. I can't remember when the private equity business started at Goldman, but it was right around that time, the mid-80s. The real estate area was a couple of years later than that. So again, even as it grew, the lion's share of the risk was taken within the risk arb area. J. Aaron started to grow and grow its currency risk so that by the late 80s, early 90s, it was dominant in terms of the amount of risk that got taken at the firm. But that wasn't the case in the early years. And what was the additional cast of characters that came through that risk arb desk in your time there? We looked a few years later for an additional junior person and found Tom Steyer, who joined us in 84. I joined in early 81. He joined about three and change years later. We hired another junior trader when David Silfen went off to the block desk by the name of Danny Ock. And then over time, we added research people. Amy Stevens left the area. When I started running it, looked to hire a number two and found a guy coming out of Harvard undergrad by the name of Eric Mindich. That was late 88. And we brought in people over time. Eddie Lampert joined in early 87. Dinakar Singh joined in 89 or 90. Renan August around 91, 92. A lot of people that ended up in a variety of fairly important roles within the industry. What was it about that group and that training under Bob and the desk and under you that allowed so many people to learn so much and become so successful in the hedge fund industry? I think it's a combination of two things. Bob's philosophy was one of uncertainty. He wrote a book on it where you couldn't know things for sure. You had to know what could go wrong. You had to estimate the probability of that thing going wrong. And effectively, being humble about your confidence level in ultimate outcomes. The second aspect of it, and I think this was really important and something that we tried to bring to Taconic, was the fact that at Goldman, it was the partner's capital. It wasn't other people's money. And that drove a very different philosophy with respect to the risk-taking mentality of that group than if we had been only paid on the upside. What were some of the either stories or things that really stood out to you of examples of Bob as a leader? The one that stands out above all others was the crash of 87. I'd started running the area in early 87. Bob had moved on co-running fixed income, but on his way to co-running the firm. And so by the time the crash hit in October, we had only been under my leadership for eight months. I was barely 30, not yet a partner there. 
And we managed to lose the largest amount of money Goldman's risk arb area had ever lost on that day. It was, in percentage terms, not terrible. We were quite defensive and quite concerned, actually, going into the crash, whereas I think a lot of firms were down 35 40% that day. A number of firms closed shop literally that day. We came into about 70% cash. We were down four. We had a number of hedges in place. So not unreasonable, but 4% of a billion dollars was 40 million. And 40 million to the partners was a very large loss. We were hearing stories of other areas getting shut down, risk getting cut in half. In a number of cases, people that had been running the areas for 10, 15 years were effectively de-risked dramatically. So we were nervous the day after the crash, talking amongst ourselves in terms of what do we do from here? What do you think the firm's going to do to us? How is this going to all play out? And as we were going through our positions, Bob Rubin came down to the floor and came up behind me. And I saw the ashen looks on the people in the meeting in front of me and turned around and Bob looked at me and said, I hear you guys lost a little money yesterday half jokingly, but not really. I said, yeah, we did. That was about all I got out of my mouth. And he said, well, I just want you to know, we just met as a management committee. We've got 100% confidence in you guys. And if you guys want to go double your positions, go ahead and do that. And walked away. At that point, as long as Bob was there, I was never going to leave. Because to show that kind of confidence in us at that moment in time and to effectively back us at a time where we really needed it was a difference maker. And it made a very large difference as well in terms of our approach to decision making from there. We felt like as long as we made decisions with the firm's interests at heart, the firm was going to have our back. And as a result, we ended up having a record year in 88 by a lot and we're off to the races. And we were able to take advantage of the opportunities that others really weren't. I should give you one other anecdote with respect to Bob, which was a couple of years later in 1989, we started a business called Japanese Warrants. And that was a business that I got very interested in because we were looking at the implied volatility of the warrants as they were trading in Japan. It was actually Fisher Black who brought it to my attention, and he and I talked about that opportunity. It looked like you could create a basket of warrants that could effectively replicate the Nikkei, but much, much cheaper, sell the Nikkei against, and have an enormous volatility arbitrage by doing that. Eric Minich and I actually put together a little basket of warrants and hedged it with futures. It was a P&L where we didn't think the volatility would lead to P&Ls of much more than plus or minus half a million over the course of a month. It ended up being much more volatile than that. So we had to approach it totally differently and brought in someone who'd actually worked with Fisher, Zach Kabrenik, brilliant mathematical mind, who devised a way to effectively map the warrant universe from a cheapness standpoint in ways that you could constantly have a basket of warrants and then hedged it very differently than a Black-Scholes valuation would, but hedged it based on the way that they traded. We went to the management committee to propose that to them, and we laid out what the expected P&L would be and also what the volatility of that P&L would be. And it was actually quite volatile. It was like $65 million P&L plus or minus 50. So 
the risk of losing a substantial amount of money was clearly there. I gave the presentation. It went extremely well. The management committee approved it. Bob Rubin walked out with both Zach and me, and I thought he was going to give me a pat in the back. And instead, what he said was, why did you do that? And I thought, do what? I thought that went pretty well. And he said, it did go well. But you've been to the management committee a dozen times, talking about risk in the risk arb area. This was Zach's first opportunity to do that. He knew it just as well as you, if not better. You took that opportunity away from him. And I thought, what a great lesson from a management perspective. He was really quite spectacular about thinking not just about the risks involved, not just about the commercial aspects of our business, but also the people development aspects of our business. So with that type of mentor and leader, as you said, you didn't think you'd ever leave as long as he was there. A few years later, you did end up leaving Goldman. So how did that come about? So he asked me to actually be part of the strategic center of the firm in 92. It was at the time that Clinton was getting elected and there were rumors about him potentially being part of the administration. So when he did that, I asked him, a lot of it depends on you really. And he said, well, we have to make the decision with respect to the role now. So you have to decide one way or the other. So let me just let you know where it stands. They've picked Lloyd Benson to be the treasury secretary. And the only other job that I'd really want is the head of the National Economic Council. And they've picked Bob Reich to do that. So the odds of my joining the administration at this point are close to zero, which reminds me of the 99% odds that I put on me going to business school because I took that job and within a month, someone had decided that Robert Reich was really not the person to run the National Economic Council. Bob took it. And that role became a much less interesting role over the course of the next year or so. I ended up moving from there to run oil trading. In 1994, I worked for Mark Winkleman, and Mark was spectacular. I would have enjoyed working with Mark the same way that I enjoyed working with Bob. Unfortunately, at the end of 94, he ended up effectively losing a political battle to run the firm and left at the end of that year. And when he left, I decided to leave with him. I had four boys at the time. They were a range of ages eight to one. They were at ages where they all wanted to spend time with me. I knew with 100% certainty that that would not always be the case. (laughs) And so if there were ever a time where I'd spend a couple of years with them, this was it. I used to see memos go across my desk of people that were in their late 50s, 60s, who had decided to retire from Goldman to go spend time with their family, only to learn that they were divorced, their family didn't really want to spend time with them, their kids were grown up, they'd gone away. The idea of leaving to spend time with your family when you've got boys ages eight to one had far more appeal to me. And so I did that for four and a half years. And so that was mid-90s. How was that perceived at the time? Strangely. (laughs) (laughs) I thought of it effectively as a career in reverse retiring and spending time with your family when they wanted to spend time with you with a view that I'd eventually go back into work and potentially try and find something that I would do forever. The number of people that said, geez, that's a great decision. I wish I could do that. But you'd see the decisions that they made and they had the ability to do it, just not the inclination. It was unusual to say the least. What was it like going back? It was Ken Brody, my partner in business, who I started with in 99, who convinced me. 
And effectively, he drew me in slowly. Initially, it was as an advisor, and then it was a day a week, and it turned into three days a week, and pretty soon it was full-time. I was a chair of a hospital at the time in the first couple of years that Taconic started, and that was pretty close to a full-time job. And so effectively, those first couple of years, it was juggling the two. As the role of chair of the hospital took less time, Taconic became a more full-time thing. And what was Ken and your vision for Taconic, having had that Goldman experience? So we had an interesting conversation in late 98 in deciding to start the firm where he said, you know, if we do this right and we create an entity that has some permanence to it, I think we could either sell or take the firm public and make ourselves a pot of gold in five or 10 years. And I came back to him the next day. I said, completely think that you're right and want to go in a totally different direction. (laughs) And he looked at me bizarrely and said, why and what do you want to do? And I said, well, neither one of us has a huge lifestyle. We both have enough money that we could get by from here easily. We're not going to be suffering. If we end up with a pot of gold in 10 years, what are we going to do with it? We're not necessarily going to live any differently. We could give it to our kids, probably ruin them. We could give the money away. So could our partners. It's not really going to change our lifestyles one iota. So on the other hand, if we create a firm where we distribute the economics pretty broadly amongst all the partners, we'll be able to attract and retain a level of talent that we won't be able to do in a firm where we take most of the economics. We'll also walk in every day, not just with a quality of individual that's higher, but with a real feeling of a partnership because it will be. It'll really be a true partnership in the sense of distributing the economics fairly. That'll change our lifestyles dramatically every day. And he bought in, and that's the direction we went. What are some of the things that you put in place so that thought process could pervade the organization? It's developed over time. The most important concern we had at the time, because right as we were starting the firm, Goldman Sachs was preparing to go public. It occurred to us that much as we would want the firm to be in its private form, like a Goldman Sachs forever, that the next generation may have a different view. We wanted to try and set up the firm in a way that it would remain a private partnership and remain effectively aligned with the limited partners the same way Goldman Sachs Risk Arboria was aligned with the Goldman Sachs partners. So we put in a clause which has been referred to by one of our investors is the anti-Goldman clause, where if the firm ends up either going public or selling at some point down the road, 30% of the economics effectively gets carved out and goes to Ken's and my foundation. So the intent wasn't for us to get rich if it happened, but rather to have a deterrent to the remaining partners taking it in that direction. What are some of the other things you've figured out over the years that help that partnership and stability of the organization? A lot of it was a function of just trying to think through how to align the decision-making for not just the investment professionals, but anyone in the organization with how a limited partner would want that decision to get made. So one of the early ones was not to have an eat-what-you-kill system. We didn't want people to be compensated based on the upside with obviously no direct consequences on the downside. And so 
to the extent that people took a lot of risk that was factored into the ultimate P&L. The quality of the P&L really mattered. The quality of the decision-making mattered. There were times where someone was going to make very good decisions that happened not to work out and vice versa. We were very clear about the subjective compensation structure that we had in place. It was also much better from a teamwork standpoint. If you were sitting next to someone and you were getting paid purely as an eat-what-you-kill system, you not only have no interest in whether or not the guy sitting next to you makes money, you actually want them to do poorly because if they do poorly, you get more of the capital and you will be able to profit more from the results. And so one of the aspects of it that we talked through was to the extent that people helped each other out with the investment side, that would be one of the factors in their compensation and vice versa. If they were perceived as being purely working for themselves and not helping out, that was going to be detrimental to their comp. Curious what you found over the years with talent attraction and retention when some of your competitors at least will take the star and pay them as if they're a sole star, that eat what you kill type model. How has that played through in that original concept of who you can have around Ken and you originally as partners over the last 20-something years? We haven't had trouble on the retention side paying people equitably. Equitably doesn't mean that you pay everybody the same. You clearly have stars within the organization that have become partners and become significant partners because neither Ken nor I really right from the start took as much as 20% of the economics. There was a large percentage of economics available for the people that really drove the profitability. In addition, they knew that when Ken and I eventually retired, our economic stakes would go to zero and they would effectively inherit the firm. And so the significant drivers of the economics have stayed. We have 14 partners today. The average tenure of the partners over 15 years at Taconic, the average experience over 20 years. We've been able to keep the stars that we had. We've also been able to attract stars with the same logic. If another firm goes out and tries to hire someone, they can offer them economics, but not partnership. Or if it is partnership, it's a small sliver of the economics that's left. In our case, we can talk to people about partnership and a significant partnership percentage if they end up driving a significant percentage of the economics. And so it's enabled us to go out and hire top talent as well. Inevitably, organizations have some turnover, whether it's voluntary or let's call it involuntary. And when you have that type of meritocracy, partnership feeling, how have you handled those situations where, for one reason or another, there was turnover? And it's been both, as you say, voluntary and involuntary. We had two partners, the only people that left to go to another business that just wanted their name on the door. We knew that was going to happen at some point. We've also had partners that, in a couple of cases, didn't work out. And we were pretty straight with them in terms of things not heading in a direction that was really going to work either for us or for them probably leading to an area where at least for some period of time, they would have significantly less capital to work with until they effectively rebuilt their ability to demonstrate that their commercial instincts were still there and they could still deliver for the firm. In most of those cases, the partners decided to just move on and find something else. It's been relatively smooth even when we've had those difficult conversations. We've also had conversations where we took someone's percentage down 
dramatically based on changes in contributions to the LPs and based on role. And a couple of those have led to people effectively saying thank you. In one case specifically, they literally said, thank you for doing this. I've come in every day feeling like I was being overcompensated. It didn't feel good. I didn't feel like I had a future here. You found a way for me to continue to contribute at a level where I think it makes sense. So I'd love to turn to the investment side of the equation. What did you set as a strategy? We started solely RiskArb. The idea was even in starting the firm that it would morph into credit. Those are the two big drivers in the RiskArb area at Goldman. They were frequently countercyclical in that in good times you had a booming M&A business and bad times you had a booming credit business. It's tended to not be quite as countercyclical with the amount of QE that we've seen over the last 13 years, but they were countercyclical businesses at the time. Riskarb at the time in mid-99 was a very big business. A lot of the drivers for the firm had been Ken's in my view that we were in the midst of a mania. So we wanted something that did not correlate to equity markets. Not surprisingly, most of the M&A that existed at the time were M&A between high-flying internet companies, where it was actually fairly complicated in terms of trying to figure out the hedging strategy. If you hedged share for share, you were frequently vulnerable to the dollar spreads widening because both companies would double. So both companies double, the percentage spread stays the same, the dollar spread doubles. So you needed to be more closely dollar hedged rather than share hedged. But it was a time where the spreads were very big because nobody was interested in making 15, 20% returns annually when you could make 15, 20% returns in a week picking the right stock. And how did you grow into new businesses over time? The hurdle for us was always, it had to be accretive to the returns. We ended up growing gradually into new businesses, some of which worked, some of which didn't work. The business that we clearly were going to evolve into was credit. We did that in 2001, 2002. There was no question that that was going to be an ongoing business for us forever. The businesses that became a little more questionable, we went into the emerging market credit business with not great success, stayed in that business for a couple of years and decided to exit it. The businesses that worked better were the credit businesses under John Jackman. He runs our North American credit business. He developed an RMBS business for us in 2007, first from the short side, and then post the great financial crisis from the long side. The CMBS business for us in 2011, there was a big opportunity there effectively a basis trade between senior CMBS pieces of paper and the CMBX indices. It evolved from there into real estate in CMBS-related real estate in 2013-14, when we identified an opportunity that was actually really unusual, where you could, by buying securities that had virtually no value in and of themselves, we paid virtually nothing for them but they came with them rights to buy defaulting assets out of CMBS trusts. You would be the exclusive buyer of those assets. And so we ended up aggressively buying literally 25% of the entire market in those securities and built a real estate business around that opportunity set. That's been a quite successful business for us. 
In a bunch of those different opportunities, I think of RMBS after the financial crisis, CMBS a couple of years later, they followed some period of dislocation or crisis in the markets. I'd love to hear how you think about risk management through those periods of time. I've had a view from, it really dates back to 87, that if you are able to preserve capital really well through a big dislocation and you're on your front foot coming out of it, not only do you have the benefit of not losing a lot of money going in, but you have much better liquidity. You're in a much better position to take advantage of the opportunity coming out of it. The philosophy of the firm from the inception has been to, in a big dislocation, keep losses to single digits. And we literally have a stress test that goes through the equivalent of an 87 crash and assure ourselves every month by going name by name, portfolio by portfolio, how much would we lose in a huge dislocation and making sure that we've got enough hedges in place where that's the case. That's been the philosophy, not just with respect to the merger arb distressed area, but every business we've gone into. We want to make sure that we don't lose too much money in any individual situation, but also in aggregate that even in a big dislocation across the board, when correlations tend to go to one, that we're not going to be in a position where we've lost more than 10% in that situation and can be on our front foot taking advantage of the opportunities. When you're going through the portfolio with the team, portfolio managers, how do you implement that construct on the downside? The way we calculate the stress test loss is on a discrete basis. We've got statistics that model the portfolio that look at what standard deviations of loss are, et cetera. But in a big dislocation, the loss that you're going to suffer has nothing to do with the standard deviation of risk that the entire portfolio has. Your statistical analysis breaks down when you start to look at tails. I like Emmanuel Derman's quote. He, he used to work with me at Goldman in the equity derivative business, who said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Models are very good at predicting what will happen within one or two standard deviations of the current situation. Where models break down is at the tails, and it depends on the nature of the security, the nature of the risk that you're taking. And you've seen that time and time again, whether it's the Bear Stearns mortgage hedge funds that broke down in 2007 or long-term capital or date back to a number of situations. People will frequently talk about eight or 10 standard deviation events, which clearly could never happen. And it's a function of those models breaking down. So while we do look at the statistical analysis of the portfolio to try and understand what our effectively DVO1 risks are, what our directional risks are in the portfolio, to analyze our stress test loss, we assume that correlations will go to one and we'll have each of the managers go through their entire book and come up with their analysis of what they would lose in a stress test again, position by position. And you can test whether those predictions are accurate, even in less than stress test situations. So if a market's down 10 and you're assuming a stress test of down 20, how did it do? How close to half the loss is it? It should be, in fact, less than half because a stress test will lead to more than linear losses on the downside. You can look across the book and see how different portfolio managers actually did in terms of predicting their losses. And so that's how we effectively 
manage the risk of the book on a monthly basis. How we take risks after a stress test event is a different situation. And more frequently than not, it's a function of encouraging people to take risk in spite of everyone, including my own natural inclination to hunker down when an event like that's just taken place. People frequently say, if the price were ever to get to this, I'd load up the truck. What happens when the price gets to that is they have no interest in loading up the truck. (laughs) And so it really is a function of encouraging risk. I'm curious, outside of the tales over the last 10, 20 years, there's definitely a feeling that the expected returns that you can see in some of the things that you've participated in over the years has come down somewhat. Certainly Merger Arb is a great example of that. When you're trying to be methodical about hedging out the left tail, how do you think about the risk return profile of what you're trying to deliver as a whole, knowing that the returns in a normal time might be a little bit less and you have to pay something to hedge out that left tail risk? You're asking a question which actually has quite interesting applications to the environment that I think we're going into right now. So if I think of the last really 13 years, and it was true before then, but less so, you've had incredible liquidity, excess liquidity that has been ubiquitous almost the entire time. You can think of pockets of times where it wasn't the case, certainly the end of 2018, maybe the first quarter of 2016. But for the most part over the last 13 years, excess liquidity has effectively found its way. I think of it a little bit like a waterfall effect. It tends to fall into all of the cracks of the opportunity sets in our business. And so if there was an opportunity in risk arb, it tended to get arbitraged away relatively quickly. If there was an opportunity in CMBS credit, capital would find its way there. I think the environment we're going into is different than that. I think it's one where, to a large extent, people are going to repatriate their capital to their own area of expertise. There's going to be a lack of liquidity or less liquidity than there has been, for sure. Fed is clearly heading in a direction of trying to tighten financial conditions. I personally don't think that we're going to be heading into a period of excess liquidity for quite some time. I think the expectations that once inflation's under control, we're going to go back to the Fed as it was before, I think is less likely to be the case. I think as capital effectively gets repatriated to their individual areas, to people's areas of expertise, you're going to have less capital that flows across the borders of investment areas. I think what that leads to is air pockets of opportunities in different businesses. So there'll be a sudden deleveraging event within Merger Arb, and capital isn't going to rush there. There'll be a sudden deleveraging event in some levered area of structured credit, and that opportunity will be there for a longer period of time than we've seen historically. I think we need to be prepared for that and manage accordingly. As it's happened so far, the Merger Arb business You mentioned the merger R business and how do you manage the tail risk. The merger R business used to be a business where you could be invested on a permanent basis and do just fine. It's become a business that's much more cyclical. There are times where there's a deal that breaks and it leads capital to temporarily flee the area. And there's a very temporary big opportunity. There's a specific deal or two where something happens where suddenly people 
had been fully invested and are suddenly finding themselves more at risk than they expected. And there's a big opportunity in one or two specific deals. That's lent itself more to having a very concentrated and very variable book. And that's effectively how we manage that risk. I think it's a much better way to allocate capital to risk arbitrage within a multi-strategy book because you can be right now, it's 15% of our book and 5% is in one deal. You couldn't conceivably have that kind of exposure if you had a merger or a book on its own. How do you organize your team to be sufficiently proficient in lots of different areas so that you can spot those air pockets of opportunity and then nimble enough to take advantage of them? We started with more of a generalist model, which was more the model we had at Goldman Sachs, frankly. The issue was more valuation of an enterprise, and that applied to credit just as easily as it did to merger arb. As time has gone on and we've gotten into more specialized businesses, we've gone to much more of a specialist model. CMBS is run by James Jordan, who has been in that business effectively his entire career. He now runs the CMBS and real estate operations. RMBS, same thing. We've got a specialist who's focused on that. So each area effectively is run by people that are constantly focused on their areas What we do to end up getting the capital allocated to the best opportunities is effectively have them raise their hands when they see a big opportunity there. We're not effectively saying, you did well last year, and so here's a lot more capital, because frequently it's actually the opposite that happens. When an area has done very well, other competitors have also done well. Excess capital is typically being allocated to that area, and the expected returns tend to not be very good. It's usually the other way around. When someone's actually lost a fair bit of money, it's because an area has been quite dislocated. The expected returns end up being bigger, and so you're looking to allocate more. We think of capital effectively being pulled from us rather than pushed by us. The people running the areas will raise their hands when they see a big opportunity. How do you make the decisions about the sizing of those capital allocations when someone's calling for the ball? couple of things. One is there's a constraint around individual position loss. We also will look at sector risk or factor risk. We don't want to have an enormous amount of risk that is all quite correlated and will go down together given a certain scenario. But within those constraints, they're largely the drivers of how big they want to be in individual positions. We do have an investment committee that will meet and talk through what the opportunity set looks like, how big a risk of loss we should be willing to take given different scenarios. Obviously, some tail risks are bigger than others, but largely within the risk constraints that we set, it's the PMs themselves that are closest to the situation that make the decision. That's a lesson that I learned from Ruben way back when. He would never try and impose his judgment in deciding whether something was a buy or a sale. He always felt like we, as the people that were closest to the deal, that had done all the work on the deal, were the ones most able to make an investment decision. He might have a view as to how much risk we wanted to take within that area. But in terms of the decision-making itself, leave that to the person closest to the facts. Alongside your core strategy, over the years, you've done some of these dislocation funds. And I'd love to hear some about what the decision process is 
from spotting an opportunity that you want to offer to clients to deploy more capital to the timing of that and implementation? The way that we've made the decision with respect to any of these commitment funds is a little bit different than at most firms. I frankly think has a lot to do with the success that we've had in these entities when we've actually launched them. And that is largely to have them be driven by a partner close to the area that feels there is not only a big opportunity for the firm, but a big opportunity personally to put a lot of capital in that specific area. What I want to hear in deciding whether to start a committed capital fund is this is a great opportunity. I want to have a lot of my capital there. And that's effectively what drives the launch. We've had a number of times where clients come to us and said, we'd love for you to do a fund that looks at XYZ. If we don't believe in it, we're not going to do it just because the capital is available to do it. What are some of the areas that you're excited about today? We're clearly heading in an area where, as I said before, excess liquidity is going to be much less prevalent. Financial conditions are going to be tight for quite some time. And that lends itself to a credit cycle that's going to be more normal. I think as financial conditions tighten, especially right now, over the next quarter or two, we're heading into a time where the likelihood is you're going to see corporate default rates substantially higher. That's particularly true in Europe, but Europe is more of a bank credit market, not a security credit market. But I think both in North American credit and in European credit, there's going to be a tremendous opportunity to own illiquid distressed assets, illiquid distressed credit for quite some time. Especially in Europe, since it's a bank credit market, having committed capital is really important. But in the US as well, liquidity of markets is getting more and more challenged. And to be able to optimally take advantage of the opportunities that I think we're going to see over the next couple of quarters, you really want to have committed capital ready and able to deploy. How do you think about positioning for some of the apparent macroeconomic risks as rates rise, inflation, geopolitical tensions, things like that? Rates, we hedge pretty religiously. We try and take as little DVO1 risk as we possibly can. The other risks are clearly factors that we're thinking about constantly. I mean, that goes into both the timing of deployment of capital and even whether to deploy capital. I think of our very first committed capital vehicle that we launched in the fall of 2007 with an investment period that ended in March of 08. So it was a very limited investment period. And the idea was effectively to take advantage of the sales by the banks of levered loans, which we felt they definitively should sell for capital purposes. We were right that they should. We weren't right that they would. So we saw some dislocation. Obviously, Bear Stearns failed or close to failed in March of 08. And that led to a dislocated market at that time. But we felt that the risks of further unwind were high enough that we never deployed the capital. And it's probably the committed capital fund that I'm most proud of because we were only going to get paid if we drew the capital down. We had all the expenses of putting the fund in place, but never drew it down. And I think in the environment that we're going into, you have to have that mindset of being willing not to deploy it if you think the political risks, the financial risks, deleveraging risks, whatever they are, are too high. Frank, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions. And one more to ask you before that, which is 
You talked about on the onset, the desk that you were on at Goldman, the legacy of the Bob Rubin risk arm desk became this legendary hedge fund that you mentioned Tom Steyer, Farallon and Richard Perry's Perry Partners and Danny Ock and Tenniker Singh and Eric Mindich and Eddie Lampert. All of those individuals at this moment in time have come and gone. Maybe they're managing their own capital, but they're no longer managing outside capital. And I'm really curious, what's kept you going? It's a business that I love, that more than anything else. I don't know necessarily what motivated each and every one of those other individuals. They clearly all got to a point where they didn't need an extra dollar of income. Obviously, Tom went into politics, has always had an interest in politics. Others, it was more sitting on a beach or whatever it was that they chose to do. But for me, again, it goes back to my decision when I left Goldman. I really left it with a view that I would take my retirement years at a time where the kids were young with a view that I would be in a business that I really enjoyed and stay in it ideally forever. It's fantastic. All right, Frank, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Bar none tennis. I'm a pretty decent player for my age group, probably one of the better players in the area. And yet a function of Ken's love for the game, we ended up hiring some very good tennis players in our firm, including the number one doubles player in the world. So I found myself number four or five at our firm and with four boys, number five in my family. (laughs) What's your biggest pet peeve? I think it would have to be overconfidence in things that you really can't know. Probably dovetails on the investment side too. Yes. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Bob Rubin and Ken Brody. Without Ken, I wouldn't have started Taconic. He and I did that together, and it was really his idea. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to a flame? It would have to be investments where I know it's a very limited downside, but there's substantial asymmetry to the upside. And how about blind spots? I think I've been permanently scarred by the crash of 87. As I mentioned, I'd only been running the area eight months at the time, and it's left me constantly fearful of tail risks that are at times visible risks and at times not visible risks. It has probably left me or us more deliberate in putting risk on subsequent to a dislocation. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Without a doubt, it's to treat people with respect across the entire economic and social spectrum. All right, Frank, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? When your wife says she's had a bad day, just listen, don't try and fix it. (laughs) And it's taken me 38 years to figure that out. Honestly, I'm one of those people who do try and fix every problem. And with four boys, I learned relatively early on that I was much better off letting them work things out It's led to the relationships amongst the four boys being incredibly strong. Still to today, they're in their mid-30s. But it took me a lot longer in business. There were a number of times where I would identify a problem and rush to fix it. And it was really someone else's job. And by rushing to try and fix it myself, I would come up with a suboptimal solution. The people whose job it was would typically resent it. They'd follow it because I had figured out the solution. And maybe worst of all, the next time there was a problem, they would sit in their hands and wait for me to find a solution. I've come to realize that 
letting people figure things out for themselves leads to both better solutions and solutions that people really buy into. Frank, thanks so much for sharing this incredible career and story and what you're still going on with today. Ted, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.